Welcome to Katusa First. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the elders here, and uh, we like to work our way through a book of the Bible at a time. That being said, if you got your Bible, turn to Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. Did I say something funny? I don't know what I did. Oh, okay, okay, I didn't hear that. I was like, I was like did I do something? Is this up here? Okay, somebody said, got it, yes. Colossians chapter 4. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out where I want to start here. So let me do what is best and just start with reading God's words. You guys do recognize, right, that um, just because somebody stands on a stage and they have a microphone and they say things loud doesn't mean that everything they say is right, right? You can go from church to church to church and uh, somebody could talk very convincingly, but if I could just talk you into it, then somebody else who is a better communicator than me could come along and talk you out of it. And so this is why understanding and opening God's word is so important, because this is how we test what somebody says from a stage, from a Sunday school classroom, that we always go to God's word, and God's word is our authority. That is why we spend so much time. I mean, I can't think of how many weeks we were in just Colossians chapter 3. And we might not always break it down in the most uh, historical um, minutia, right? We might not go over every historical detail, but we do try to take our time because I want you to understand what this letter that Paul is writing from prison is for. And it was for those who received it, and it's for those who are still receiving it. So Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. We've read this almost every week. We're going to read it one more time. If you got it, would you say, I got it? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And we'll touch just very brief, briefly in chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we take time to hear and to receive and be active listeners to your word, God, that you would slowly make the changes in us necessary to better reflect who you are. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Twice now, he's used the term bondservant. And some of your translations might even say the word slave. And they can be switched. A bondservant is a slave in many aspects. Now, it's a broad term because in Rome, a bondservant was literally a slave. Somebody who had been kidnapped from their land and then sold for manual labor or other kinds of labor. But the Hebrews used the term bondservant too, but it had a sl slightly different context. Um, Western slavery that had existed in Americas would never have been allowed in Israel if people obeyed the, the laws of God. 
because the Old Testament strictly forbids anybody being kidnapped and then sold to a different group. Now, slavery had existed all throughout history, and so the nation of Israel was unique because not only could they have somebody that had been taken uh, captive or been stolen from their land and sold, they couldn't do that, and that was unique for Israel, but they also had to treat them in a very unique way. Compared to the rest of the world that treated slaves as property, the nation of Israel had been told that you have to take care of them, provide for them, educate them, right? And the term bondservant also could be for somebody who is in debt. Like if, if somebody owed you a lot of money and they couldn't pay back that money, they could come and work for you and they would be your bondservant. And there was even a tradition that after the time had gone where they had paid off their debt, the person who had them as the bondservant had to give them some money and also help them go and start a new life. So like today, if you have credit card debt, the credit card company can come after you and eventually take your home and they can take all sorts of stuff from you. If you don't pay your taxes, the government can come and make you a homeless person and they don't have to provide anything for you. Slavery still exists. Financial slavery still exists. But in the nation of Israel, after you paid off your debt, you could uh, be set free. And if you really liked your master, you could pierce your ear and then you would be that person's bondservant for the rest of your life. But it was your choice whether you wanted to stay with them or not. So there was this desire for them to treat their servants really well. And the Bible actually talks a lot about slavery. But Jesus never once says, hey, slavery is bad. Don't be slaves anymore. And this would be a huge social issue of the time. One third of Romans were slaves. Another third were former slaves. So you had the majority of people in Rome were very familiar with slavery. Why didn't Jesus just come out and address one of the biggest social issues of the day? Why didn't he just say, hey, no more slavery? What happens if you get rid of slavery... And the law has changed, but the hearts haven't. And people still treat other people as though they are less than the other people around them. You've changed the law, but you haven't changed a heart. And so what the New Testament does is very striking, and I think it's very important, is over and over again, he addresses the heart, which if you apply what the Scripture teaches about the heart, then slavery doesn't mean anything at all anymore. So Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So what does that do? Well, if somebody who owned a slave all of a sudden read that and said, I have to treat them right and fair because I have a master as well. Is there a hierarchy anymore? No, we're both slaves. See, you're either a slave to sin or you've been bought with a price and a slave to Christ, right? So he's like, it's going to equalize the playing field. Think about what this would do to slavery. Galatians 3.28, it says, Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is, neither, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. 
It was Christians in the 1800 who read verses like this and looked around at the culture around them and said something's wrong. In fact, I want to read you just snippets from a letter from 1836. It was written by a lady named Angelina Grimke. And it's titled, Appeal to the Christian Women of the South. And this is what she said. Act on this subject. Some of you own slaves yourself. If you believe slavery is sinful, set them at liberty. Undo the heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free. If they wish to remain with you, pay them wages. If not, let them leave you. Should they remain, teach them and have them taught the common branches of an English education. But some of you will say, we can neither free our slaves nor teach them to read, for the laws of our state forbid it. Be not surprised when I say such wicked laws ought to be no barrier in the way of your duty. And I appeal to the Bible to prove this position. What was the conduct of Sephara and Pua when the king of Egypt issued his cruel mandate with regard to the Hebrew children? They feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. Did these women do right in disobeying the monarch? Therefore, says the sacred text, God dealt well with them and made them houses. So in 1836, this Christian woman was writing to other Christian women, appealing to scripture, saying you should go so far, even if your state says this is okay, disobey the government because it is better to obey God than man. This is an re- act of rebellion, isn't it? Wasn't that an act of rebellion to write letters to women of the South and tell them to disobey the authorities around them because they should be obeying God, not man? People sometimes don't realize it was because of Christianity and Christian morality weaved not only into the Constitution but to the hearts of every Christian that slavery eventually gets overthrown. And it is not because of one letter that all of a sudden everything changed the next day. Do you think the next day everything changed? No, it was, it, it's, not, it's not a dam breaking. It's a slow drip of a faucet that fills the ocean. And one heart after another heart after another heart appealing to the authority of Scripture and God Himself that all men and all women are created equal and are images of God. In fact, in the letter, it's quite interesting if you ever want to read the whole thing. It's only about 14 pages. She appeals to Adam and Eve. And she says, God gave Adam and Eve a job and He put under them the birds and the animals and the field, but He put no other man underneath Him. So therefore, we cannot treat other people as though they are below us. And this appeal to Scripture, one heart at a time, changed the world. Now wherever Christianity goes, slavery begins to disappear. The rights of women begin to increase. Christianity is good, if not the best thing, for the world. Now, how is this applicable? Why do I bring this up as we work our way through Colossians? Because for the last couple of weeks, we have gone through some kind of heavy stuff 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church. Children, obey your parents. We've tried to break that down. And we have called on you to stand up to do better. Like, here's the standard that God has set for us and the direction that he has called for us to live. And so we're trying to raise the bar that you can be a better father, you can be a better husband, you can be a better wife. And it's not about serving the other person, it's about serving God and doing so with a joyful heart. Whenever uh, I do relationship counseling or premarital counseling, the ones that seem to have the best relationship at the beginning and end are the ones who understand it is not about trying to make the other person happy. It's about we are working together for God to make us holy. And as we grow in holiness, it's incredible how I make my wife happy. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness, but happiness is not the point of marriage in the first place. And so we, in some ways, I feel like we've been somewhat harsh, and that's okay, But I need to remind you that it's not legalism. It's the grace of God that changes us one day at a time. Because some of you, you might have heard that sermon about being a better husband or about being a better father or things like that, being a better wife. And you go home and you make all these commitments. I'm going to start doing this. Or on Wednesday nights, we talked about um, uh, the spiritual disciplines. And the first one we kind of began with is reading the Bible. And one in four Christians don't ever read their Bible. Only 11% of all Americans read their Bible on a somewhat regular basis. And I've been asking the question a lot, would it make any difference in your life or not if you even owned a Bible? Like you might own one, but you've never opened it. You don't study it. You don't read it. That we just show up and we passively listen. We don't even actively listen to God's word being read. And so when we hear things like that, and I get really convicted, I, had a, uh, I have a podcast and I interviewed the guy who wrote the book on spiritual disciplines, and he starts talking about fasting. And as he's talking about fasting, I feel really convicted because I'm, I'm not a good faster. I have fasted, but I don't fast, right? Like, it's not something that is a part of my spiritual discipline, and in my mind, I do what many of you do. That's it, tomorrow I'm going to start fasting and I'm going to go for a 40-day fast, just like Jesus, right? And then you find me passed out at my house, right, like malnourished. Because I did it wrong. I did it wrong. And he even suggests, he's like, just fast from one meal. And if you can't fast from food, fast from something else. Fast from the food you like, just eat rice. If you like rice, just fast from something else. Fast from your phone. Just today, I'm not going to spend any time on my phone. If whatever it is that you find that you do all the time, maybe it's you, you watch TV every night. You say, you know what, for the next week, no TV at night. I'm just going to spend time in word and prayer. Maybe just start with one night. But see, we have these big ideas and we feel conviction. And conviction is good because it's trying to change you. But sometimes we don't know what to do with conviction. We make big promises to God. Starting tomorrow, Jesus, I'm going to be a warrior for you, right? And we, we get all the gusto, and we do what's called a spiritual high. We get, oh, we're, I'm going to do all these things. And then you might do it for a day. Some of you for five minutes. And as soon as it gets difficult, you stop. And then you get discouraged. And then you feel like maybe God doesn't like you as much as he did before you tried. 
And so that's why I bring up, as he's talking about bond servants, that's why I talk about how long it took for slavery to change here in the U.S. Because it was one person reading Scripture, making the arguments, wrestling with it internally, and then beginning to decide, I'm going to treat my neighbor as myself. And small little steps over a long period of time make a big change. See, some of you don't even think you've grown that much in Christ over this last year. And maybe you haven't. But what I would encourage you is you, you don't be the judge of that so much as those around you. Sometimes people are like, wow, you've really changed. You've really grown. And you go, really? I haven't noticed that. That's because you were changing in like little bitty pieces. Just small, like an inch at a time. My kids are growing, right? They're at the age where they're just shooting up all the time. They just get like an inch taller uh, every month. And I don't notice it because they're just slowly growing. But then my parents or uh, Adrian's family will come around and they'll go, oh my gosh, you've gotten so tall. Well, they notice it because last time they saw them, they were here, and this time they're here, and they see the big growth. And sometimes those who are closest around you have a hard time seeing you grow too because they see you all the time. But can I encourage you that slow growth is good growth? As long as you're growing. As long as you're growing. God doesn't love you if you grow. It's because he loves you, you should grow. And I think that's an important reminder after so many like heavy hitting kind of, you need to be doing this, you need to be doing this, you need to be doing this kind of sermons. I think sometimes we need to fall back and remind ourselves of the grace. Yes, I need to do that, but yes, he loves me anyways. You can have both. And I think Paul, as he has been like hammering home, and he's been like, because remember, the first part of Colossians is all about who you are in Christ. Hey, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember how much he loves you. Remember that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus and that you have the Holy Spirit living and residing within you. And he builds up Christ and puts Christ at first. And it's not until chapter 3 that he really starts getting to the problem. And then as soon as he gets to the problem, he does this. Chapter 3, verse 20. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And I think that's one of the ways, if you're at just my opinion, I think that's one of the ways that Paul is giving them just that influx of grace into their life. The Roman, the Roman lifestyle is nothing but hierarchy. It's nothing but hierarchy. And it's hard for us to even understand that for them, their position, their title, their gender established where they were and if you were in a lower position, you had to ask permission to even talk to that person. You had to treat them in a completely different way because they weren't just, oh, you think you're better than me? No, they were better than you. And everybody knew it. And the whole social structure upheld that. So you literally felt better than others, and they literally felt lesser than you. Because from childhood, they had been told, no, those people are people of privilege. They're better than us. That's why they get education. They're smart. We're stupid. We don't get that education. They get those freedoms because they can handle it. Oh, we can't handle that freedom. That's why we're in chains. And the whole structure was this violent, ungodly hierarchy. 
And Paul reminds them, whatever you do, you're not working for them. Whatever you do, don't worry about them. You don't work for them. He says, you work for the Lord and work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, I try really hard to, to bring you guys a good message every Sunday. But there's a lot of Sundays in a year. And some weeks are really busy, whether it could be something totally out of my control. There could be a family emergency. There could be somebody in the hospital. You, you never know what it is. And so, I don't know, this might be a surprise to some of you. Some sermons aren't as good as others. I know, I know, I know, right? Like, I, I try really hard to, to bring a, a good message to you. But there are weeks where I get done and I go, the only thing worse than having to hear that was having to be the one preach it, right? <laughs> and I'm, some, there's weeks where I just sweat up here, and I hope you guys don't notice it at all, right? I, I hope you're just like, oh, that was good, and because I'm giving you everything I got trying to course correct a sermon that's gone astray halfway down. But here's the beautiful thing about that. My sermon, ultimately, that I preach every Sunday Though I pray it benefits you, and I, it helps you, and it encourages you. First and foremost, every sermon I preach is for an audience of one. That you might see me, I, I don't stand a lot uh, while we sing songs, though I love worship, especially the Christmas songs. I, I, love, I love this time of year, and so I am worshiping. But I'll be over here, and I'm kind of having my prayer time before I get up here. Hey, I got to stand the whole time, and y'all got to sit. So while y'all are standing, I'm sitting, right? It's just... Seems fair. But in my, my prayer time, I say, Lord, I pray that this sermon is a sweet sound to your ear. Not every sermon might be the most meticulously written, well-crafted speech. But I do pray it is always obedient. And that it pleases the Lord. And every day when you get up and you try to love your wife and children, it might not be the best. You, you, you're going to fail. Talking with a, a friend the other day. And he was struggling in his relationship. And he said, she says that she feels like I don't love her. And I tell her I love her every day, but she says she doesn't feel like I love her. I said, well, what's her love language? He said, touch. I said, well, do you express that? He goes, no, I'm not a touchy guy. I said, so it doesn't matter that you are telling her. You speak Spanish. She speaks French. You're speaking the wrong language to her. If you want her to feel loved, you have to speak that language. And Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, obey what I command. And your obedience might not be perfect, but you're at least trying to obey. And as you try to obey, you will grow in your obedience. Obedience, even those, uh, if you talk to somebody that was in the military, they teach you how to do stuff. And somebody could do it, the, like, they say attention, and they go to attention, but it's a sloppy attention. Right? Or they say at ease, and they go at ease, but they do it wrong. And they could be obeying, but they're not obeying well. But as long as they're obeying, that can be corrected over time. 
big things in our lives and big things in culture like slavery, like abortion, like all of the stuff going on in the culture, sometimes we can feel hopeless because it doesn't seem like anything is changing. And sometimes you feel like you're not changing. But Paul has written this letter to re-get us around Christ if we put our focus on Him and then we begin to treat our spouse and our children the way God desired for us to do then the process of sanctification, which is the big word for us becoming more like Christ, is at work. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit as you try your best to obey. Trust and obey, for there is no other way. I want to suggest just change 10%. If you can do more than that, great. But just try. It can seem overwhelming because the things of God are oftentimes contrary to your nature. And that's why you need scripture to remind you of the nature that you're supposed to have. The Christ-like nature instead of the worldly nature. But I just want to encourage you, just try changing a little bit. You, you might not, in fact, most people I know, that big change in their life came when they found Christ. And that was the big revelation. Uh, Isaiah 9-2. In fact, why don't you just turn there? Turn to Isaiah. I often say, it's always a pastor's fear when I throw a verse out there that wasn't in my notes... And then I'm afraid I won't be able to find Isaiah fast enough. And you just stay end up here like, hold on, guys. Let me find the page. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. When you got it, say, I got it. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. I just love that verse too. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Do you know how long you walked in darkness? How long did they walk in darkness before Jesus came? How long? It was a long time. There was a long period of darkness as they're waiting for the Messiah to come. As they're waiting for Jesus. And I imagine many, many people are going, is the Messiah ever actually going to show up? And then a little bit of hope shines into the world when a baby is born. And I think that's part of where this message this morning is coming from because my mind is so focused on all things Christmas and Christ. Um, I think this hope is really important. This growth, this change, and, and forgive me if these aren't connecting here, but I, I, what I'm trying to illustrate is this growth is hard and slow, but it's worth it because they waited for a long time, then the Messiah showed up, and we are waiting. It's been 2,000 years, and we are waiting for Jesus to return. We're not walking in darkness anymore. The light has come. 
But just because it's been a long time, we're not going to lose hope. I'm still going to wake up, and I'm going to try to obey Christ. I'm going to try to follow him, and I'm going to try to listen to his word. And I'm going to try to be obedient to what he's asked me to do, because I know I have hope, and someday my Savior will return. Amen? So as the holiday season gets closer and closer, I want to remind you, we can do a little better. That obedience is a good thing, and we should be working towards obedience. If you failed, that's okay. Try again tomorrow. Sometimes we think that we all need to change the world. Like you talk to young, uh, young people that want to be missionaries, they want to be pastors, and they, they want to go out and they want to make this big, big thing. But I don't think enough gets said of how valuable it is is just for godly people doing godly things on a small scale and how much that will change the world. Godly people just being obedient, living their lives, going to work, raising their kids can change the world. I'm going to pray. Some of you don't have much hope this week, though this season is so much about hope. This time that we focus on Christ and that light coming into the world. Here's, here's the hope for you today. Jesus is king and he's coming back. And I want to encourage each one of you. If Jesus was to show up next week, that he would find a group of people who had been doing their best to trust and obey because they know that their master is in heaven and whatever they do, they do for an audience of one. When you go to work, it's not for your boss, it's for an audience of one. When you love your wife, when you play with your kids, you're doing that for an audience of one. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let me pray.